In recent months, I've grown highly sensitive to how dull I suspect I've become as a person. How dull we've all become. The feeling is most acute when I listen to old radio interviews or home recordings found by crate diggers at yard sales and uploaded to internet archives. I long to dissolve into the world of the people I hear on these tapes. They all seem to possess a sense of comfortable detachment and a lack of self-awareness about their place as it relates to the capital I issues of their time. They are people who live in seemingly disparate states. Keen yet lazy, messy, strange, obnoxious, but still gentle. People with unrealized potential, we might call them today. Personalities that aren't preoccupied with or hindered by externally dictated parameters about the proper ways to discuss a particular topic. Their speech not yet laden with preamble, disclaimers, and apologies. As if, by virtue of living their life unsullied by the pressures of showmanship, they've been afforded the opportunity to develop genuine idiosyncrasies, and not the hyper-curated ones there seems no shortage of today, for which there's always a lurking sense of an ulterior motive or studiedness to people's chosen personas. Nowadays, I feel I live in a world where I watch others, am watched, watch myself being watched, and watch others watch themselves. How little this mode of being affords producing anything of actual interest. How difficult it is to spark spontaneity when we are tethered to our personal algorithmic silos. That is not to say that self-awareness was invented with social media, or that the internet killed originality. Rather, that self-awareness is the vehicle which drives the sum total of our every act, decision, all the way to our most mundane interactions with others, makes for grotesque performers of us all. This isn't a nostalgic ode to a bygone era of political incorrectness, because that in itself is steeped in a politic whose thick film I want to wash from my conscious being. Rather, buried deep within the recesses of my soul, where my longing for substance and sublimation reside, there is the unshakable fear the world's once reliable supply of true eccentrics runs critically low. Worse yet, Anyone with the makings of being an eccentric is unwittingly occupied with matters which I believe are entirely beneath them. That the impetus to be entirely self-possessed is not only laden with extraordinary obstacles, but may no longer even be possible at all. It is evident that I'm not welcome so I will just pack up my few meager belongings and move to a nice island somewhere off the coast of Nebraska. Well, I can change. Well, I can change. Ask yourself, well, I can change. when was the last time you spoke to someone well, who seemed change. entirely unaware or uninterested in public affairs? Someone whose lack of involvement wasn't necessarily deliberate, but rather a product of having more interesting things to do or think about whose perceived strangeness wasn't rooted in fringe ideologies or their support or opposition to something entirely outside of their control, but rather the way through which they navigated their own life, the way they interacted with the world. Maybe it's my own fault, but I can't remember the last time I encountered such a person. 
Instead, I've watched people I know mold themselves into brands, their posts on their platforms of choice increasingly formulaic, addressing their audience of followers comprised entirely of their friends and family as impersonal subjects, as potential customers, so often employing that patronizing tone and self-aggrandizing language favored by sterile internet personalities trying to sell us something. I see teenagers dishing out trite positive psychology aphorisms like, People are not entitled to your energy. Never apologize for being selfish with your time. Unavoidable truisms which have slithered their way into our private conversations, not because they are considered worthwhile or even altogether applicable, but simply because they are convenient in their vague profundity. In an age so lacking any salient vision of the future, its younger generation so mired in cynicism and quiet desperation, overly acquainted with the abject failures of public figures and institutions, vague but ultimately worthless profundities are the most many of us are capable of conjuring when searching for wisdom. What opportunity is there to explore the limits of ourselves when asynchronous ideas herald threats of professional disenfranchisement? financial destitution, social rejection, isolation. And why isn't anyone talking about it? Surely this collective ennui is indeed collective. Why are gotchas the main currency of most commentary? Who can be satisfied with such tepid appeals to our most petty inclinations? Pithy, smug, but unfulfilling retorts to perceived rhetorical wrongs or shortcomings committed by faraway enemies which exist in never-ending back-and-forths that provide nothing of material substance. And since they lack any benefit except for a fleeting sense of superiority, they violate the cardinal rule of all things which exist for their own sake. To be beautiful. It seems to me the only occasions which offer us any reprieve from this bitter reality of our existence are during those unexpected, unconscious moments of embarrassment. Brief occasions of chaos where vignettes of life as it used to be lived reveal themselves and remind us of our distance to our so-called real selves. Those instances where we are confronted with a randomness our overly systematized lives perpetually seek to eliminate, where the scripts we follow on rote are of no use to us and we are momentarily left to our own devices. How life-affirming it is to be caught in a moment no one could have accounted for. How precious a thing to be reminded with such visceral force of our not being automatons. Thankfully, we haven't reached the point where, say, a subway car full of people contending with someone having shit themselves warrants think pieces and critical theory treatises on the role of public defecation on systems of oppression. Instead, we experience the usual disgust, bewilderment, amusement, and grasping for connection with those around us. I can't believe this guy shit himself, we say. Unfucking believable they respond. Getting off at the next station together, gulping for air, and getting on a different car still together. Exchanging no more words, 
just a nod goodbye when you've reached your stop. No tweets, no pictures, just a shared memory between humans united by someone's embarrassment reminding us of our fallibility and the fundamental absurdity of life itself. Still wearing my bathrobe, I enter a department store. I wander down an aisle when a sales clerk comes up to me and asks, May I help you? Yes, I say, thank you. I do need help. Life seems meaningless to me. I'm making less and less sense to myself. I don't want to be found dead slumped over in front of a vanity mirror with moose on my hair and bare minerals SPF 15 medium beige foundation on my face a pair of nose clippers in my hand I don't want to be found dead sprawled on the tile floor of my bathroom having failed to flush the toilet my pants and underpants bunched at my ankles a newspaper and my glasses scattered nearby by how long it's taken me to release this second episode. I thought about it every day. Also, I will say this. Huh. I've been recording this whole conversation. Really? Yes. With the idea that if I were to keep the second part, I would intersperse... The person who wrote this next part, this bloviating, self-important hit piece on humanity, that person being me doesn't sound like a very nice person at all. Watching the journey of a person has value as well, but this is the second episode. You don't start journeying like that. The second part, if, if it were me, if I was your producer, I would say, get rid of it, man. If you do happen to hate the person in this next part, please just chalk it up to human frailty. Well, my frailty specifically, which seems to be <laughs> a little bit more uh, pronounced. But yeah, please don't let this be the reason you don't listen to the next one. Thanks for waiting for so long for this. I hope you like it anyway. I read somewhere humans are predictively empathetic towards someone who has embarrassed themselves if and when that person's embarrassment is physically self-evident. Sure, a coy, fumbling apology never hurt anybody, but downcast eyes and a deep blush? Utterly disarming. It's been theorized humans develop the ability to blush for the sake of their continued membership in their clan groups, and ultimately, for their survival. According to neuroscience, we turn splotchy shades of red to maintain a secure access to lunch. 
Some researchers even believe the very purpose of our species, unusually evolved color vision, is to detect subtle hue changes in other people's skin. People, however, are much less understanding when someone's demonstrated embarrassment is disproportionate to the committed faux pas. Like someone suffering a brief but nevertheless very public nervous breakdown after failing to have a PowerPoint presentation appear full screen on a projector during a work meeting, the person's inability to exhibit an appropriate response is the confirmation others need to conclude this isn't an outlying occurrence in their life, a rare lapse in judgment, an out-of-the-ordinary blip in behavior which is deserving of forgiveness, and poo-pooed with reassuring smiles, wave of a hand, lets everyone move on sort of mishap, but is instead actually reflective of that person's overall failure as a social animal. A glimpse into the mess which comprises their general existence as a human being. And that, for us, is the most contemptible thing of all. Honestly, you'd probably be good if you talked about why you were in that state of mind to some degree. So it was a true masterstroke of fate for me to have been born not only with a stubborn propensity for embarrassing myself, but also with an overdeveloped sensitivity to the existence of anything which may be even remotely construed as humiliating, my brain unable to accurately process the sensory evidence of my experiences. Thus I reside squarely in that aforementioned doomed and disliked category of people who overreact to blunders others with more precise processing styles disregard with casual ease, if they even perceive them at all. No, because I understand the implications of what's involved. Hence denying myself even the consolation prize of others' sympathy, navigating the world with an invisible shovel always beside me ready to dig my own grave at the slightest provocation. You really, really, really need to think about what the character of Yasmin, the fucking radio host, what you want that to be long-term. My condition is so chronic, I'm even embarrassed by the things I find embarrassing, like people with unattractive children. David Lynch talks about this a lot. For what could be more demonstrative of genetic, even cosmic misfortune than having a child with slow-witted eyes and a configuration of facial features more rhombus than golden ratio? The fertility rate isn't what it used to be, and if you're averaging just 2.3 children a lifetime, and they're all unsightly, then I simply can't help but wince at the wretchedness of your circumstances. This is setting up people to say, like, hey, this is what the show's gonna be, I guess. It's just her shitting on people and being kind of a jerk. That's not to mention having to tell someone their baby is beautiful when they clearly aren't, becoming an unwilling participant in a tragic charade. Other unwelcome incidents include recommending a mediocre, at best, film or restaurant to someone and being the culprit for their spending time and money on a disappointing experience, while simultaneously damaging one's own credibility as the purveyor of good recommendations. A position of great social import and not one to be taken lightly if one lacks all other discernible skills as I do. Better to lie and say you've never seen a movie in your entire life and rely solely on buttered noodles for sustenance and thus spare your reputation any potential disgrace. And then when you add into that the hatefulness, then it's really a lot. Then it's like, holy shit, that is like 
a lot. Or the friend who has a constant supply of exciting potential new schemes they're gushing about, which you know will never come to fruition, because they lack the executive function and organizational prowess to materialize even one of those ideas. But it's because it took me a year, so it's like a year of silence. Guess what? I'm actually a cunt. The combination of unrelenting confidence or delusions of grandeur despite a glaring lack of talent and persistent failure is a hotbed for derision. All the world a graveyard for the misguided pursuits of us, its inhabitants. It's punishing everyone who listens, and no one will ever listen to that. Not a single person on earth will listen to that and be like, I'm not any of these things. I've never felt this way ever. Like, this is great. They're, everyone's going to feel punished. Another mortifying phenomenon I have intimate experience with is those first moments after I've shared an idea or piece of writing with someone as I wait for their feedback. The other thing is there's no, hu it's humorless. Yeah. Each second of the other's silent rumination and eternity which holds me suspended in critique purgatory. It's the silent yet deafening sound of diplomacy in motion. Part of the second episode, one of the paragraphs is about the anxiety that comes with sharing a piece of work with someone and then not immediately loving it. The quiet of a calculated reaction whose careful, private construction has already rendered it unusable, untrustworthy. In my broken mind, anything short of instant, almost manic praise transforms any cautious optimism I allowed myself to feel about my work into dread and preemptive humiliation as I begin to pray for someone to barge into the room and thwack me and other present parties over the head, causing blunt trauma-induced temporary amnesia so that the exchange may be forgotten altogether. You're impulsive in life, but you're not impulsive... How embarrassing for one to have assumed they've created something worthwhile which was actually mere rubbish. Even worse that now this person whose opinion you value will never forget that you're actually just a puttering wreck, a sham, an imposter. So often the entire thing, meaning life, feels impossible. And I wonder how someone hasn't had the foresight to commit me to a padded room where my meals can be delivered through a thin slit in the door, and I can be rid of the business of having to pass judgment on every waking exchange altogether. I think the first paragraph can stay. All of the stuff about me needs to go. Funnily enough, I don't think being forcibly committed and institutionalized would be embarrassing at all. The hurtling chaos of an untethered psyche is its own sort of accomplishment. The oblivion it offers us, a freedom otherwise outside reach. You've played radio shows for me that are like 10 years old and you've played the sixth episode for me, like now. Imagine if two people like us were hanging out, someone likes radio and they're showing the other person, like put on a random episode and that was the episode. I'd be like, what the fuck? I'd be like, what is this? But I also don't want to be that second part person. And sometimes you fall back into it, but like... Generally, you're, like, a lot better now. Like, you seem to have healed some things. I learned recently that, quote-unquote, ugly babies aren't held as much or smiled at as often, even by their own parents. Let's everyone smile at ugly babies more, huh? <laughs> Viva la ugly babies. So dry your tears, maybe some tomorrow A true love may happen your way For life is a funny thing Joy, sorrow, it'll bring 
So have no regret And just learn to forget How to cry little buttercup cry Can we kill it and eat it? You asked. This was your response to your barrel-chested ex-military 8th grade science teacher after he suggested bringing in the precious new kitten he and his wife had just adopted. Despite sitting in the front row of the classroom, you chose to half-yell your suggestion, making sure any passerby in the hallway also had the distinct pleasure of hearing them. You blurted out inappropriate remarks at inopportune times with regularity and lagged behind your peers as they developed a mildly important skill called thinking before speaking. You felt your skin prickle and grow so hot it broke into a near-instant sweat. Your body waited for your mind to catch up to the realization that it was your mouth. Can we kill it? Who was the culprit behind the obscenity? The obscenity that was greeted by the room with total and confused silence. The complete absence of a single chuckle, not even a giggle. A quiet so heavy it had the reverse effect of amplifying your outburst as it reverberated through everyone's mind. Can we kill it? Can we kill it? Can we kill it? And eat it? and prayed for your teacher to break up the dead air. Surely he would rescue you. What the fuck is wrong with you? I don't know the A perfectly appropriate question. And incidentally, one whose answer you were also very curious about as well. Since you had no reasonable or readily available explanation... You were left no choice but to utter one of the most grotesque sentences in the history of all human speech. I thought it was funny. And delivered it with such a heavy serving of self-pity that anyone who heard your feeble quibbling was awash with a renewed second wave of contempt. If the initial, Can we kill it and eat it? was the earthquake. Worrying but survivable. The, I thought it was funny, was the subsequent tsunami that threatened to wash everyone away in its wake. You doubted whether you'd be able to approach anything even resembling eye contact with your teacher for the remainder of the school year. It was a wonder you hadn't melted into a puddle and been set aflame by him with some noxious chemical on hand in the science lab, casting out whatever demonic energy you decided to conjure up that afternoon. Perhaps someone's mother would even send them to school with sage the next day in an effort to cleanse the air of your remains. You don't remember how or when your class was dismissed, only that you teleported outside, free to wallow in self-loathing, but also something else, something akin to awe, at your boldness, the mysteries of the subconscious. Did that really happen? Was it you who said it? You heard your name being called to the principal's office over the school intercom. While others may have dreaded being summoned by the authorities, for you, the announcement presented an opportunity. 
Finally, you could level with some reasonable people and clear up any misunderstandings. Years of involuntary outbursts amounted to proficiency in what you imagined was artfully charming concerned adults, but probably sounded like incomprehensible excuses so bewildering they forgave you more out of a need for you to stop talking than any actual reconciliation having taken place. Either way, there was no fear of the unknown here. Oh no. This was well-traversed ground. This time around, the concerned adults in question or your panel of jurors, consisted of all your teachers. Maybe. What really transpired? It was hard to say. The mind has a wonderful way of suppressing traumatic memories. Returning to recess after your trial, your classmates asked you what happened. Curious whether your strange verbal spasm had earned you any formal punishment, Expressing remorse would have been the most tactful strategy here. So naturally, you went the opposite route and played the unsatisfying role of the so-called wrongfully accused. They asked me if everything was okay at home, you said, defiant. As if your teachers implying your remarks advocating animal cruelty and the consumption of a beloved household pet could ever be indicative of a deeper personal disturbance was more ludicrous than what you had said in the first place. But nestled somewhere deep in your heart's eye, you relished the minor thrill that came with shocking yourself, despite the high price of public indignity. Thus begging the question... Why would anyone make themselves go through the painful task of being an object of ridicule? Where in our body does this compulsion live? Is there an imp of the perverse in all of us? A few years older now, you're interested in the exhilarative properties of these accidental transgressions perhaps as a small gesture of kindness towards yourself meant to resolve all of the uncomfortable and untidy mishaps of your youth. Once enough time, the great healer, has passed, you are able to gaze upon the fossilized form of these moments and wonder how often everyone revisits the husks of their missteps, the swift and sharp repudiation we've all endured, the sting of others' reflexive rejection, How often do others resent having been reprimanded not for acts of terrible immorality, but mere innocent miscalculations? You feel a sense of camaraderie, even affection, with other such unfortunates. United as you are in your absurdities, your mind connected by the common threads of your humiliation. Those of us whose moments of private frenzy were made regrettably public by ourselves, the masters of our own undoing, Could it also be those moments that somehow propel us into new planes of existence? There is a sort of alchemy taking place when one is embarrassed. Self-loathing, surprise, dare I say amusement, and an urgent desire to make it right, to forge understanding, as if our whole humanity springs forth from a reaction of horror and fascination with ourselves, all entwined with sensitiveness, and the desire to receive it in kind. What else but embarrassment provokes this dizzying surge of life? Was it not Darwin who wrote, Blushing is the most peculiar and the most human of all expressions. 
Does anguish grant us access to a broader spectrum of emotions? Realms not privy to the unassailably polite and well-adjusted, but those prim, spiritless creatures who withhold grace and kindness and compassion for essentially minor infractions are welcome to enjoy their tight, gray world without you. For there is nothing more transcendent and restorative than warmth and the reassurance that someone likes us despite ourselves. That Intimate Feeling is written by Yasmin Mansouri and produced by Yasmin Mansouri with Katie Lore. You can reach me, Yasmin Mansouri, through the Instagram page at That Intimate Feeling or through my website, yasminmansouri.com. <laughs>